Okay, Pete Giuliano. It is Friday, the 30th of June, 2023. Pete, what number is that? What, the, what uh, does that mean? Uh, before we start, I just want to alert you that when you come to my section, I may be demonstrating a little bravado. And I also want to show you what I've got in my hand here is plans for a new SDR transceiver <laughs> that I can't quite share with you as yet. But just know, I'm just showing right. my plans here. It's All right, 247. Uh, crank two, it four, in robert crank it in ralph crank it in fellas that's good pete you got you have all your recorders running there you're recording yes, on do. audacity already all right really I good do. hey listen you gave a little preview of your section i'm going to leave, give a little preview of something i'm going to say and all i'm going to say is that we're going to talk about during this podcast whether whether or not whether or not the icom 7300 is at the heart of darkness yes it is and I'm sure that's going to stir up a lot of people. I've already been accused of engaging in clickbait, but you know we try to be we try to be relevant here on the show, Pete. We try to be connected to the zeitgeist of yes. the epoch in which we are living, and, and so that's why we're going to talk about the ICOM 7300, which seems like everybody has one. Pete, I think I see that you're from your background there. You've got that beautiful piece of Collins gear behind you there. What is that? That's an I. That's a Collins KWM one. Collins can't. We're going to talk about Six, that. Sixty-five I been, years old. 65. I know, and you've been using it. How 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 old is it? Sixty-five. More than half the age of radio. Yes. yes. All right. As as you and I are. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Marconi would be pleased. Hey, listen. Um, so this is. Uh, I, I am wearing. Look at this. I'm wearing my bling, man. Yeah. Look at this. Yeah. I'm wearing can bling. Yeah, I got up a little late this morning, Bill, because it's 6 a.m. <laughs> here on the left coast. And so I just grabbed some clothes and I said, I got to be there. Uh, all right. Yeah, there you go. You, you're okay. But I, I, listen, I want, I want it to be known that I am wearing Lamacan Radio Club bling that Farhan left when he was here last yes. month. Look at that, man. I got a sticker. Hold on. There's something else I got here. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this, Pete. You got one of these too. Yes. yes Look at I this. Do. Look, I am a licensed amateur radio operator. Yes. Proud to be part of the 0.2%. Yes. Well, if you if you if you get it down into home brewers, it's even smaller. <laughs> yes. 0. 0.002, something like that. Anyway, we'll we'll talk about that very well, again also. We'll talk about that some more. You uh, listen, I want to just mention we are under the smoke here and it's not solder smoke, man. It's Canadian smoke. This morning, the last couple of days, I know you guys in California have had this this situation for a long time, um, but it's 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 kind of new to us. It's quite thick. I mean, you go, you step outside. We I was talking to the guy who put up my antennas. He said he stepped out of the house. He thought his neighbor had had some sort of fire going on, but no, it was it was uh, Canadian forests uh, burning. Well, well, I heard something interesting on the uh, on the TV yesterday. They said that a lot of these forest fires that are occurring in Canada are burning in inaccessible areas. Mm -hmm. they're, they're too far to reach by, by aircraft, and you, yeah. there are no roads, and they're just going to have to let them burn out, and that's September, October. I know, we're talking about the whole the whole summer here. It's, it's kind of gloomy. It's, it's, it affects people in different ways. Elise is quite uh, uh, kind of harshly affected by it. It gives her you know, headaches and eye burns and all kinds of uh, reactions. So it's quite serious, and people are going out, and people are – 
buy an N95 mask to try to stay away from the particulate and everything else. So it's it's pretty pretty tough. Not only that, we've got storms on the sun, Pete. Storms on the sun, cycle 25. Some interesting news. I put a post up on the um, on the blog this week. Somebody was comparing um, the uh, the recent sunspot activity to what happened during the Carrington event. We talked quite a bit about the Carrington event here over the years, and uh, that was the the huge sunspot cycle sunspot that that caused a coronal mass ejection that hit the Earth. And and wow, they said that flames were shooting out of telegraph switchboard lines, like actually flames shooting out, and so. That would be that would be quite spectacular. There's, I think there's a solar event going on right now. I noticed this morning that the K index, which I keep an eye on, was pretty high. It was up at three, but that's not really massive, so it might have have missed us. But the the bottom line, I looked in one of these articles. They said that they thought that the cycle twenty five peak may be stronger and earlier than anticipated. I don't think anybody really knows, but. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of uh, sunspots that, that have kind of knocked out propagation. A lot of good propagation, too, but yeah, I guess you have to take the good with the bad. Um, it can't be as good as 19, Pete. It can't be as good as cycle 19. I know, but we got fingers crossed, so you never know. It might, it might, it might work out. It might be good. Hold on. I'm going to turn off these lights here. Hold on. I've got too many harsh lights. Look at that! Look at that! That's better now, man. I think that's that might be a bit might be a bit a bit more visually pleasing. Anyway, um, oh yeah, I wanted to give a quick brief on the um, solder smoke south update. The shack solder smoke shack south coming along, man. It's coming along. Should be done. Should be done by uh, by winter time. So when we go down there this winter, we'll probably be staying in our own place. And I got I got nice views of it. It's amazing. I, I've been studying the. Um, like the, the geographic orientation of the place and where the shack is going to be. There is a, a sizable shack. shack. Shack there is going to be about the same size as this shack. Wow. And it's up on the seventh floor of a seventh floor apartment building. And it's got views of the horizon in almost all directions. And I've got to just think about where I, and how, what, what kind of antennas I want to put up and where I want to put them. I, I would love to put a hex beam up there, but I think that would be pushing the envelope. So we we got to think about that, but it's moving along, so that's that's fine. Hey, hey, you know, I wanted to share with you at one time because of just timing and what have you. I put up a twelve AVQ, twelve AVQ. That was high gain. That's a tri-band vertical. Yeah, so, and and that was on the roof of my house. I worked more DX with that stuff. I mean, it was just just especially the sunspot cycle was cooperating. So something like that might might work out really well. I know. I, I mean, I, I've been thinking about a vertical, but the thing is, I've become I've become addicted to directional antennas. Oh. You know, look at this. Okay. I'm gonna, you could you, you could hear my look at that. You could hear the rotator turning there in the background. And then and then it's, up there. it's, it's yeah. rotating around, man. Hello, yeah, South Africa. Yeah, hello, yeah. hello, New Zealand. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I might. We'll have to see. I, I don't want to. I don't want to freak everybody out. If I put up a hex beam up there, man, it would just blow fuses. People. People say they're going to be cooperative, but they have. That's because they haven't <laughs> seen it yet. Once they see it, it well, might a mox, be. Well, a mox on a, a lower profile gives you the. Yeah, I know, but but the thing is, the moxins are always a kind of a monobander. 
Just a, just a, you, you, it's hard to to nest them, you know. You're 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 convincing yourself to put a <laughs> put a hex beam up there. You know how you're many beam, you know how many I, I how many bands I got on that hex beam now? I got five bands up there. Oh, there you go. So it's basically a two element five band beam, which is pretty hard to beat. I could have put I could have put a sixth band up there. There's space on the on the hex for uh for the, on the K4KIO hex for six meter elements. I just didn't put it up there because I don't I haven't never done anything for six meters. But uh, you could anyway. I I don't know. We'll 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 have to see what goes on with the um, with the uh, the antenna for solder smoke shack south. In, in the meantime, I've been gathering parts and equipment and stuff that i'm going to send down there and i've got the whole <laughs> i got i got another room here kind of it's kind of filling up with stuff that i'm going to ship south but um oh yeah one other thing i want to update on german and canadian direct conversion high school or school receiver projects we've been getting updates from two places in the world that are also involved in using the direct conversion receiver as sort of a tool for teaching analog electronics to students. One is over there in, in Munich, Germany, and uh, they are the, they're, they're using, um, Andreas is using uh, a direct conversion receiver very similar to the one we built. And he's working with graduate-level biologist students. He runs a course called Electronics for Biologists, which is really interesting. And they've got um, three receivers, I think three or four, already completed. <coughs> and then Daniel over there in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, has built three of these things with students. Great success. They've got, a, they've got them completed. I am trying to encourage both groups, Pete, to actually connect these antennas to real outdoor antennas you know we're, we're, encou- we're encountering kind of i think i i think it's almost like a generational cultural problem here you know if you if you're used to kind of plug and play electronics very often you consider the antenna to be kind of an afterthought like an option thing you don't really on need. the ground Aware you don't really need it you turn the thing on it works fine yeah you don't have to hook up the antenna well it's, it's different when you move into hf ham radio and uh so i, I wish these guys would just take all it takes is 33 feet of wire, a ground connection, or a counterpoise, and Bob will be your uncle. But they, they, there seems to be this tendency to, to try to either come up with a, um, a desktop loop, loop-style antenna or uh, some sort of a, you know amplified antenna with an FET that you don't have to go outside. But I don't think there's any real substitute for putting up an antenna that actually connects you to the ether, you know? And so also when you, when you start building these active antennas, you're really just adding another stage of amplification to the whole project that, that we, and we were, the whole idea was to keep it simple and, and to minimize the number of stages. So we, we actually came up with antenna schemes that were so minimalist that they didn't even require coax. I mean, it would just connect up, boom, directly to the bandpass filter, 33 feet of wire, out it goes. The other, you, you hook up some sort of ground connection or counterpoise, and you know, like I said, Bob is your uncle. There's, there seems to be that kind of <laughs> aversion to outside antennas. All right, uh, okay, I, I, I hope, hope people can overcome that, but to each his own. The other thing that we notice is, and we've talked about this before, uh, you and I kind of grew up in ham radio at a time when you just assumed that background noise, noise, band noise was normal. 
Like you'd turn on the radio, and if you heard the hiss, you were, you were pleased. The thing is working, right? And if you turn off the antenna and the hiss goes away or drops significantly, boom, you know it's really working. That's where you test it. But we're discovering that, that for people who are not used to HF radio, hiss is seen as sort of some sort of a defect. It's a, you know, it's a bug, not a feature. Like it shouldn't be there. It means that something is wrong. And I just don't know if there's any way around that because, you know, absent going, you know, FM broadcast, uh, you know, it's kind of quality stuff. You're you're always going to have a little bit of hiss if you're listening to SSB radio. So, um, or CW even. So anyway, we'll see how those things go, go move it along. Hey, I want to, I want to add something here and, and it just, how things have a, a way of coming back to you. Andreas, the guy in the Germany, right, that's building the DCR project, evidently he used an audio amplifier that came out of the LBS project. Right. Okay? So some guy here in the States is building that, and he sends me an email and says, why did you connect it up that way? <laughs> I'm saying, well, what do you mean? So if you look at the audio amplifier circuit... The audio output is taken off of a complementary pair, right. and the ground connection is to the VCC. Right. So he said, well, why can't you just put that to ground? I said, because you'd short something out. Yeah. But the thing is, is the, the collector is, look, is, is being appearing as the ground connection because it's connected to the VCC. And so I said, well, yeah, that's a problem because you can't just put that on a panel you know, a metal panel, because you're going to short <laughs> yeah, yeah. the 12 volts to ground. Yeah, said, yeah, yeah. Not a, good, yeah. not a good idea. So he said, well, why'd you do that? I said, well, let me tell you. I said, the the whole concept of the LBS was to not use ICs. It was all discrete components. And not so, and not use a transformer either. Yeah, and not use a transformer. So I said, that's what the premise was. And I said, we found the circuit, and I said, that'll work, except... Except you have to worry about not putting the the antenna uh, the audio output to ground <laughs> anyway, yeah. you know, because you're going to short twelve volts to ground. So yeah. I mean, it's just interesting. I, I I'm saying, why am I getting this email? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I find out why. Well, but it's well, I think it's good that people start start discussing this stuff. But it is a that circuit, the complementary pair, and it it came up a lot. I used it when I built one of the the Bidex, one of my early, I think the Bidex 20 or Bidex 17. I too wanted to avoid the LM386, the ubiquitous LM386 at the output. But as you point out in your circuit, you can homebrew one of these things with a complementary pair. Usually have a couple of diodes in there and another transistor is sort of the driver biasing element. And you can do it and you could get sort of LM386 kind of levels of output without the resort to an IC and without the use of an output transformer. Now, we didn't we didn't use that in the DC receiver project just because we were trying to keep it simple. And we thought that three common emitter amplifiers would allow the students to understand how the amplifiers work. But uh, but Andreas went with that circuit. That's that's fine. I mean, I think it's, it's a little bit different. But um, anyway, it, it is interesting. Here's a tip. Swap out the 2N3904 and the 2N3906 with a TIP31C, TIP32C, 
and you get over a watt output, and you don't wow. have to change anything else in the circuit. Just well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna take you up on that, Pete, because in a minute we're gonna talk about my 1510 dual bander rig that that uh, you can see over here. I'll bring it over here. We'll talk about it a little bit, but I want to use your output circuit there, and I'm, I'm gonna use those those transistors also. Hey, uh, a couple Nick of the Vic, Nick the Vic did that. Uh, yeah, that, Nick the Vic did it. Yeah. Yes. But Nick the Vic now has gone all kind of DDS and SI5351 <laughs> digital on it. Ooh. Uh, there you we'll, go. We'll talk about that. I mean, he slide, he's sliding into ICOM 7300 territory here, yes, you know? Yes, um, All right. So uh, a couple other things I want to mention is, as long as we're sort of, we're sort of in the early part, the travelogue section of the show, um, Bob Crane, W8SX, was out at, uh, at Dayton Xenia, at FDIM, and he did a series of interviews that I put up on on the blog. Really good, and I, I thank I thank Bob for for talking to people. The interviews with Farhan and uh, and Hans and, and the others who were out there were were all really great. I put them up. I think there might be a couple I still have to get up on the on the blog, but I'll take care of those. But thanks to Bob for doing those. Um, also in travelogue, Pete. You know, not everybody followed your. Uh, your admonition to boycott field day. Yeah. I, I went, I actually, I listened for the first time in many years, I actually went out to field day. I oh, did. Wow. But I only did it for like two hours. Oh, okay. I drove what out mosquito there. mosquito bites did you get? I didn't get no, no mosquito bites. Cause we have a drought here. No mosquito bites. And, uh, and I, I met a lot, of, a lot of nice people. I went out to the Vienna wireless society's field day event, which is, which is really good. And, you know, Dean, our friend Dean, KK4DIS, is the president of Vienna Wireless Society. And I've been getting more involved in the club, and it's a lot of fun. And so I just went out there, and it was an impressive setup. They were out at, a, like, at a Virginia State Park near, near a lake. Get this, they had four hex beams up, man. Four. Boom. It looked, it looked like, you know, sort of like an Orson Welles War of the Worlds kind of thing. These things were descending on the, the earth or something. But they were, they were really good. There. I think they used like um, the portable buddy hex uh, designs. They were up. They had four different stations going. They had a satellite station going. And it was cool. And I got to meet uh, uh, some, some really cool people out there. Uh, just not only all the, uh, the Vienna wireless guys. But I also, I ran into Jack Welch, Daka Jack, who, who we've been following as he moves around Cyprus. the world. He was in Cyprus, right? He was in Cyprus and he was in Dhaka. France. And, and, and now he he's in France. in France. A villa in France. But, you know, he came back and part of the reason he came back was to go to Vienna Wireless Society wow. Field Day, right? <laughs> and and I, he, was, he was fooling around with his car and I, I, I kind of came up in the front of the car where he couldn't see me. And I said, just so he could hear me, I said... You know that HT thirty seven has even on CW, it has presence, presence. <laughs> <laughs> which is what he sent to me on CW one straight key night uh, when I was using the HT thirty seven, and I didn't recognize his call at first, and I sat back and I said, "Who the heck is talking about presence on the HT thirty seven CW transmitter?" But it was Jag. I also talked to another guy, Mark Kanawate. We've been talking about Mark here on and off. Mark is another member of the Vienna Wireless Society, and he is a really impressive builder of satellites. He does it, I think, commercially. It's his business. But he's also done it 
for ham radio and for, for local clubs. And he has a number of, of satellites in orbit that, that he put together, that he built and then went into space. So we walked over to the, um, to the, to the tent where they were doing the satellite work for field day. And Mark just, and he, wasn't, and he wasn't bragging or anything. He just very casually mentioned to me, he said, well, you know, I built that one. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I thought I thought was, yeah. was 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 pretty cool, pretty cool. And so Mark Mark is he's kind of typical. Well, I wouldn't say typical. He's unusual, but there are guys like Mark who, who are to be found in the the ranks of Vienna Wireless Society. So that was pretty cool. Also, you know, we had a, the, I wasn't there when it happened, but some of the um, the high school kids that we've been working with came out to observe field day and they got on the air. They had, they, they, Dean had had it set up. So one of the tents was what they called Gota. get Goda, on the air yeah. tent, get a yeah. get on the air tent. A tent was, which was set up for, for newcomers, new hams, kids like that. And so some of them got on the air. They had a lot of fun. And then we had a bunch of hams who were in the area from Palo Alto, California, from out there on the left coast. Wow. And they had come out, they were very interested in satellites, and they had gone to the, the 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 NASA rocket launch facility. We have one here in Virginia, out on Wallops Island, which is just off the coast. Um, and they went out that, and then they were they were back in this area, so they came by to watch the uh, the field day activities uh, here. And so we we met up with them, and that was really good. I wasn't there when they showed up, or when the the, the high school kids showed up, but Dean Dean hosted them, and it was 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 really really cool, really interesting. Hey, but Pete, the big event of the month is what led to, of May, which was what led to the acquisition of our T-shirts and mugs and bling and so many other things. And that was Farhan and his wife, Umera, were here again. And, and it, was, it was fantastic. Every time he comes back, I wish, he, I wish he would come back like every six months or so or every month because it was just, he came in the shack. And this time, I kind of, I kind of did things a little bit differently because I don't think last time I spent enough time just sitting around in the shack with Farhan. And I also don't think I recorded enough. Last time I was, I was, I was criticized because I only had like a minute or so of Farhan tuning one of my radios. So this time we had a lot of, a lot of sitting around in the shack time and just talking and a lot of uh, a video production. So I put a bunch of videos of, of Farhan up there. You know, he told me Pete something after he left He's, he's a very kind of soft-spoken, mild-mannered kind of guy, very polite. And he I remember when he was here, he had asked me about my Astatic D104 microphone. He said, you know, he asked me, he said, why do you use the Astatic D104 with all of these rigs that I have that are all variations of the Bidex design? And I just said, well, I don't know. I mean, I they just it, it seems to work well with these receivers, uh, the the little, the little amplifier in the bass gives me a chance to kind of adjust the audio level without having to go into the the, the transceiver itself, and also it it seems to be well shielded. You know, it the aesthetic 104. It's, it's a lot of metal around it. The mic element is encased in in metal, so I I've had fewer problems with RF getting into the audio chain with the D104 than I've had with some other microphones. I I kind of thought well I, I I thought I thought he was like sort of questioning my choice of the microphone because you know others have I, I think somebody else that I'm not going to mention sent me an email and said why do you have that piece of CB gear in your shack? Shows he the, doesn't know. Uh, the D104 
predates Citizens Band yes. Radio. It goes yes. way back. It's, 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 it is a venerable and respected yes. piece of radio, amateur radio technology. But I found out later that, our, that Farhan was having D104 Envy. I wish oh. I had known. I would have given him one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, but uh, but I think he's got one back in India. So that was it. Was pretty cool. We took him. You know, um, we 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 one of the one of the days he was only here a couple of days, but we managed to get him out to the high school where he spoke to the to the students. And I put I think I put a a, a video of his yes. of an audio or an audio of his of his speech on the blog, and that was really nice because he was able to talk to them about about satellites, about how hard it is to get something into space and get it to work. By the way, there's uh, Hackaday has a, has a piece on picosats, which are really, really small satellites, tiny little stuff, satellites that are smaller than a coffee cup, right? Um, and one of the things, I was reading the article on Hackaday, one of the things that really kind of blew my mind about the whole thing, Pete, no wires. One of the rules that they have when they're putting something like this together and they're putting the boards together, no wires. They say because in their experience, wire a wire falling out or becoming dislocated, especially during launch, is a major cause of satellite failure. So when they build these things, they build them no wires, just just boards and interconnections on boards, and that's that's it. Which I thought was was it just shows you how dif- how different and difficult that that whole world is. But anyway, we got he went out and talked about to them about that. And he also talked to them about, you know, the the benefits of home brewing a direct conversion receiver and what you can learn from from that kind of project. So that that was really good. We went over we took him to lunch at the Vienna Wireless Society. One of the great things about the Vienna Wireless Society is the fact that it's not just meetings frankly it's not boring meetings nobody wants to especially if you if you work it i remember i i would get to a friday afternoon and the last thing i would want to do is after i got out of work ride out for another meeting you know because there was plenty too many meetings at work and another meeting so i I stopped going to that but vienna wireless has this tradition that in a local restaurant called pj skidoo's (laughs) every tuesday the, the group gathers for lunch and anybody who wants to come can come. Usually there's, there's, you know, there's maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 guys there and everybody just sits around, compares notes, shares parts, talks about stories, tries to solve technical problems. It's, it's a nice bunch. So we got far, Farhan came to lunch with us at PJ Skidoo's. And then he and I went out to the uh, air and space museum out at Dulles airport, which was, was kind of cool because Farhan's interested in space and, and, and airplanes and, there were some displays there, radio equipment. So it was it was a great it was a great visit, and I I, I really hope they they come back. It was great to meet Umera, uh, Farhan's wife, and it was just just a wonderful visit. So I'm I'm really really glad that they they came, and I hope they come back again soon. Yeah, but one of your videos was on the SBIDX. That's right. Farhan gave me an SBIDX, and I have it here, and 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 I must say. Um, I am I am struggling to really understand it. It's sort of outside my traditional sphere, but there's a lot to learn about that. And I've already learned a lot, and I'm gonna I'm gonna work on it some more. You know, it, it's kind of a it's kind of an amalgam. It's got a superhead receiver at the end, and at the end, it's got a, a Raspberry Pi four 
that's doing digital signal processing. So this opens up a lot of possibilities. It's a very capable piece of gear. And now I actually have two of them because he has sent me the earlier development model, which now I have I have working, and I and I also have the uh, the, the version two that that he sent that he brought with it, with me with him here. And I, 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 this is really great because what I think I'm going to do with them, I think I'm going to leave one of them up here in Virginia, and I'm going to take the other one down to oh, the Dominican yeah. Republic. And that, what I'd like to do is get them both set up so that I could do remote operating with them. And that would be really cool. So that if I'm in the DR, I could still run the station up here and vice versa. So, I mean, this is, this is a really interesting project. And it, it's, it, it is kind of important to get kind of get out of our... Uh, our rut, you know, and, and Pete, I think I, I've been in a bit of a rut where I'm just building super hat SSB transceivers. Now you are the champion here. You've got 50 of them. <laughs> I, I think our friend Walter down in, in, in Florida wrote, and he said he had built, he, he had one picture where I think he had something like, Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the family photo of transceivers. And he said that, you know, he thought that it was an impressive number of transmitters, but he admitted, he said, compared to Giuliano, man, I don't think, I think you have the record, 50, all right? So anyway, it was, it was a good, it was a good visit. And I'm really glad Farhan came and I'm, I'm grateful for the, the SBIDX, which I will continue to try to understand and get working. But then I got sidetracked, Pete, and this brings us to the bench. Can we talk about my bench? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So. Uh, you know, I, I start starting with the Mythbuster, which was a dual bander for 75 and 20 that I built on out of uh, in a wood case, basically Bidex style. Then I like that so much that I built a second one for 17 and 12. Now, the, the idea is that if you got two bands, what you do is you pick an IF that's right in the middle. And then you get a VFO so that on on one side it's it's doing the the VFO up and the other side it's going the, the VFO down so you're, you're getting to both bands and and with very easy with with basically one VFO uh, you're able to get and the I get get to the IF frequency by up converting or down converting and it's 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 easy to do now it doesn't always work out because you could end up with, with spurs and you got to watch out for that. This is one of the hazards of the superhead radio, but it worked out well for me on 75 and 20, which became the Mythbuster. It also worked out well on, um, on the 17 meter and 12 meter band. Now there you're probably less likely to have spurs because these bands are not harmonically related, right? But now I decided to push the envelope a little bit. Now that the sunspot cycle is heating up, I said to myself, wait a second, I could do one for 15 and 10, 15 and 10. You can get a crystal, you can get crystals for an intermediate frequency that's sort of right in the middle of the two, 25, 25 megahertz. You know, you, one of the things you find out about crystals is a lot of the, the manufacturers that used to make crystals for us, like Jan, you used to send order to Jan, you used to give them the exact frequency you know, how much, what's, what the, the capacitance on it, the tolerance, the whole bit, you'd send it and they would, they would make them for you. International crystals used to do the same thing. No more, man. Mm -mm. I don't think there's anybody doing that anymore, but the computer industry has resulted in truly massive numbers of crystals being out there. And I went to Mauser and found, yeah, 25 megahertz was there and I could do it. 
So I have put together the, the, the basic elements of the 1510 transceiver. I'm going to get it. I'm going to bring it over here because I'm going to talk about it. And for our, our video viewers, they will be able to see it. Now, I'm sorry. Those of you who are listening only to the audio are not going to be able to see it. But look, what? here is the board. Now, look, it's, it's on a... I've got, I'm building it on a, on a pine. Actually, this is a plywood board, but this is inspired by Frank Jones. Look at that coil I have on the top. I have this uh -huh. big old coil. The guys in the radio club were making fun of me. They, some of them said, look at that thing. Is that a Tesla coil? Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> I looks said, like it. I said it was two, probably, two, I, I said, yeah. Two at the top. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, those are just two screws. But I said to them, I said, yeah, yeah. And it was built it was wound by nikola tesla himself you know <laughs> the capacitor the tuning <laughs> capacitor comes out of a uh heat kit qf1 q oh, multiplier of course <laughs> another one bites the dust <laughs> <laughs> well the only reason i i, I bought one recently and i wasn't going to do it because i was feeling guilty about this but i knew that dean was going to be coming to the ham fest a short time after i was there and i said but look if i don't get it he is and he's going to certainly butcher it so anyway, up on this little board here, that's the whole VFO assembly. There's a, so I got the VFO. And then look, back here, you can see this is the 10-pole crystal filter Lose, using what I call these kind of low-rider crystal filters. Now, crystal, the low-rider crystals, they're in the, the little kind of short cases HC that you see on computer. Yeah, yeah they, work, they work just fine. Farhan started using them in some of his rigs. And I followed his lead on that, like on so many things. And so I built this. Now, I designed it using, I got the crystal parameters by using the G3 UUR method, a little oscillator where you switch in 30 picofarads of additional capacitance. And then you can, from the, the change in frequency, you can determine what is the crystal motional parameters. And that gives you the, also the inductive motional parameters. <clears throat> And then with another little circuit, you could determine the ESR, the effective series, series resistance. And that from that, you can get Q. And then, boom, Bob is your uncle. And you uh, can, can go and, uh, and design your, your filter. And so I designed this thing to be about, I think I think it's 2.7 or 2.8 KCs wide. It worked out really well because the input, the, the impedance of the thing, both on both sides, is 50 ohms. So I didn't have to do any kind of transformation. Then I built... Um, tia amps and i built three one is kind of an rf amp over here one is at, on one side of the crystal filter and the other is on the other side of the crystal filter so this each of these give about 20 db a gain and they both provide a 50 ohm the crystal filter sees 50 ohms going both ways i built another little board with the um, bfo and what will be the uh, the balance modulator and product detector right there. And then there's another little board over here with the diode ring mixer. Now, with this one, I decided to go completely homebrew, hardcore. That means I'm not going to use any of those nice, beautiful boards that Todd sent me, only because I did it last time and I felt kind of guilty. I did. I looked at it and I said, man... I almost, almost built that thing all the way, but I didn't. In this case, now, now look, I'm glad I used the other ones, and I will use them in future projects. Don't get me long wrong, but on this one, I just decided to be completely homebrew. 
So I actually did Manhattan-style Tia's. Pete, just shows you how, how crazy you can get. And this is, I realize, this is, this is a bit of craziness on my part. So I had to come up with the, the trifiller toroidal transformers, both for the, uh, the diode ring mixer and for the product detector balance modulator. So basically, I needed three of these things, right? So um, I, I could have used a bunch of them that Farhan left me because I still have a big box of toroidal transformers produced by the seamstresses of, of Hyderabad that he left with me. But again, I felt, man, I don't want to do that. I want to do this all myself. So I actually wound three toroidal transformers. Now, here, here's where people think I'm nuts, Pete, because I, didn't, I wanted to do it with three different color wires because that way you could keep the, the winding separately easy, easier. But I didn't have three wires of, the sa- of different colors of the same size, so I have actually different wire gauges in there. I realize this is living dangerously. I think it'll work fine. I tested the receiver last night. It works, it works okay, so that's fine. I had some testing woes, and I, I want to just mention this. Um, when, I, when I first put the filter together, I tested the filter, and it looked awful. The filter just looked terrible. It looked terrible in Nano VNA. It looked ha- terrible in the Antuino. It even looked terrible when I did like the, the old-style point-to-point plotting with the signal generator and the scope. Well, it didn't, I didn't, it didn't look too bad there, but it looked, definitely looked terrible on the Antuino and on the Nano VNA. Where I had gotten really good views and nice you know, filter shapes from the Nano VNA and the Antuino when I was using a filter at 21.4 megahertz. Why, why would it work so well on 21.4 and not at 25? Doesn't make any sense. Same kind of crystals, everything else. I was really going kind of nuts. And then I realized that one of the test leads that, was, that I was used to connect, the, to connect both to the Antuino and the Nano VNA was bad. Once oh. I replaced the test lead, the, the, the shape looked, looked really good. So there's a tale of woe. Duh. I, I had to get the, uh, the VFO, the Culpitz oscillator, running around 3.5 megahertz. These are the analog VFOs that you love so dearly, Pete. <laughs> And, and, and I, I know you, you, you're, you're entitled to grouse like that because you've built more of them than any of us. But as you know, it is hard to get them to be exactly where you want them, right? You got to get them so that they're on the right frequency, that they're stable, and that the capacitor is giving you the, the tuning range that you need. Not more, or else you're, you're not going to get the full range of coverage that you need, and not less, or else you're going to have some of that tuning capacitor is going to be way off outside the band. That's going to be useless to you. So you got to get it just just right. It's like like the Goldilocks of of, of tuning capacitors. You know, Pete, I, I put together the whole thing. I got the oscillator working exactly exactly where I wanted to it, and then I went and built. You know, the easy part is the buffer, right? Duh. The, the you know just throw throw a buffer in there. I couldn't get the buffer to work. Wow. You know what the problem was? Bad 310s, bad J310s. Oh. Have you had this problem? You know what I'm talking about? No. Well, I I discovered that I was using a batch of J310s that I had acquired, I think, just through rapid search on Amazon. And the weird thing was, I was using, I know the circuit was right. It was the same circuit that I used in many other devices. I could see the input on the gate of the FET, and nothing was coming out of the drain. Oh open yeah 
So I took this thing out, and Dean had some J310s that were real J310s, really from Fairchild. So at the VWS luncheon, he brought me a few. I came home and popped it in. Boom. Done. Yeah. So I think the, the answer here is beware of, of parts that look easy to get and are too good to be true. Now, we were talking about this on the, in the VWS Maker Group. I don't think anybody's out there in China going through the trouble of counterfeiting J310s. I mean, wow, how much money could you possibly make? You know, it'd probably be just as easy to make good J310s than it sure, is to make sure, bogus. Sure. But I think what's happening is they're sweeping up the, the floor, floor, the sweepings. factory floor. Yeah. And the stuff that failed, even though it doesn't work, they're putting it back in bags and selling it, right? And people like me buy it. And by the time we discover, we've already been paid. We've already paid the. And it's not a lot of money. It's ten bucks or something like that. But I'm I'm going to be real more more careful with that. Um, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, I, I was I built the BFO and the uh, at 25 megahertz. You know, one of the things cool things about Farhan circuit from the BitX20 is that you just need the um, the the amplifier and uh, and uh, the, the oscillator and that was that would be it but I, I that was because it was operating on a lower frequency at 25 megahertz i found i needed another amplifier to get it up to a level that was going to cause the diodes in that in that mixer to to switch on and off so i had to build another amplifier there pete i built six tias now when you're building these on your own you realize man that's a lot of construction that is 18 transistors right there right six each and i'm building three amplifiers so 18 transistors and all the associated resistors and capacitors so it was actually quite a chore to get the the six uh tias together um but it's all coming together now and i i think i just have a couple pete i want to ask you a couple things well, let me let me ask you about this as a piece of advice and you're gonna you're you're gonna <laughs> You're going to gloat a little bit because it's a it's kind of a, a analog uh, homebrew crystal filter problem. Now I I said that when I was picking the IF, especially with fifteen ten where the bands are harmonically related, I I kind of used the some of the software to try to see if I was going to have any spur problems, and it looked okay. But you're never really sure until you actually build it, you know. So when I was testing this thing yesterday. I put it on 10 meters. I had the, the, the VFO on the frequencies that I would use for 10 meters, and I turned on the BFO product detector. And then I tuned across with no antenna connector to see if I would hear, if I could hear any spurs. No spurs on 10, so 10 is not the problem. There's a problem on 15, though. When I was with no antenna connected, as I tuned across the band, when I got, a, when I got around to 21.4, woo! And then I, I took a quick look, and I have a spreadsheet set up. I checked to see what was the output of the, the VFO at that point, and it was like 3.5, 3.5, something like that, something like that. The sixth harmonic, the yeah. sixth harmonic is 21.4. 21, uh, yeah, yeah. So at, at 21.42, I'm hearing the sixth harmonic of the VFO. Now, this, this is good news, and it's bad news. The, the good the bad news is that I could hear the harmonic. The good news is that it, it's not the har, it's not the VFO mixing with some product of the BFO. It's just the sixth harmonic. It's just the sixth harmonic. 
What should I do about this, Pete? Well, (laughs) (laughs) but don't tell me I should buy a 7,300. No, 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 no. (laughs) This is funny. Uh, Some commercial manufacturers ran into this problem. And matter of fact, the SBE33, if you tune at 7.310, which is out of the 40-meter band, you'll hear one of those birdies. So they turned it into a positive. (laughs) They said, this will help you calibrate the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Tune up to 7.31, and if it's there... Your your frequency's right on the VFO. <laughs> well, I could I I could do I could do that because you know I'm try I'm going to try to avoid a Sanjian frequency counter and I'm going to go yeah. old school and we're going to have a piece of yeah. cardboard behind the tuning dial. Yeah. And I guess I could say, just make sure that this one is at twenty one point four. That's how yeah, you could yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But twenty one point four two is still it's in the upper reaches of the fifteen but, meter but, band. But I think what you what you may want to do is just to see how big of a problem that is. And what I mean by that is, once you build it and you're you're testing it on the air, do you you're still be in the amateur band because it's twenty one four five is right. is the upper limit. Right. See if you're actually seeing transmitting that on the air. I know. Maybe hearing it in the receiver, but it may be pa- not passing through the bandpass filter and what have you. Yeah, I know. I think it probably it might though it, it could so I but I, I agree with you it, it, you know the, the, it's it's a, it's a noticeable problem on receive you could put a trap in there I yeah that's another thing I was thinking about or the other thing I could do is just sort of ignore it <laughs> by by saying that I'm only going to do 200 kcs from you know 21.2 to 21.4 and it's gone yeah then it's, then gone. it's gone I hope it's gone yeah so yeah. You don't hear much activity between twenty one four and twenty one four five, right? Almost so, done. Uh, there where, you go. Where you, yeah, where you hear it is twenty one, twenty one two to twenty one three, yeah. maybe twenty one three fifty. Mainly that hundred and fifty kilohertz. Yeah. So you you could just do that. You're making me feel better here already. Good. All right, here's the other question. But it's a feature. <laughs> it's, it's a benefit. It's, it's a feature. It's not a bug. I'm going to follow yeah. the, the lead I, of sideband engineers. SB, when I read the SBE book, I said, now there's a clever marketing guy. <laughs> <laughs> you could just see, you could just imagine the meeting. Some engineer comes in and, you know, forlorn looking, oh man, I, I, I got a, I got a, I got a birdie. And some guy says, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was before they had features and bugs. Yes. Um, all right. So here's the other question I have. Now I've got space on my pine board or my plywood board there that I've left space open for the final amplifier. And you know the traditional route has been the IRF five ten, but we all know that our much loved IRF five ten has failings and shortcomings, and it wasn't designed that to do fre- this. Yeah. Yeah. Especially up at, at higher frequencies. Yeah. So that gets us to the RD06 or the RD16. What do you think? Well, I'm understanding that the 6 is not available. Well, that makes it easier. Yeah, 16 is is the one that most of most of the ones available. And the 16 is 16 is a lot higher power too. You get a lot more output, right? Yeah. Is that is that a higher power with the same amount of drive? Is it, is well, it working, or do you question. need more drive? Yeah, you you probably won't see the sixteen watts. You'd see ten. Yeah, well, it should be great. Yeah, It'd be good. 
And you don't have, and you could use basically the same kind of circuitry, the same, same kind circuit. Yeah. That's, 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 now, that's, the one thing you're going to have to look at real carefully is the six has a higher idling current, like 400 mils. Yeah. And so the 16 is liable to be a little higher than that. So you're going to need a really adequate heat sink. You can't just put a simple metal yeah. plate. You're going to need a real heat sink to mount that thing on. Because I got some really cool cards. heat sinks that, that yeah. somebody somebody sent me. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll use those. But anyway, it's, this has been, you know, I, I, I really came to the conclusion that I, I got to have something on the bench. It's fun to have something to tinker with and oh, yeah. test and build. And I, the other thing I've come to conclude is, I mean, everybody develops their own kind of preferred construction style, right? And, and I, I, and you know, it, it, we, it's good to stick with what works for you. I mean, I, I like the Manhattan style. I like being able to glue isolation pads onto the board and just go from there. You like gluing your fingers together. I do glue my <laughs> fingers together quite a bit, yeah. Um, but it, 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 I like it. It's, it's easier for me to do. The other thing I like is Frank Jones and the pine board base, you know? I, I realize that this is sort of kind of contrary to the, you know, shield everything to the max, put it in metal boxes and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, it works it works for me, and this will be the third rig that it's worked on. I, I'm also starting to think that it, there's wisdom in building two of everything, right? Especially now that I have this other shack to set up. So once I finish this thing, I might build another version of it and, and just take the other one down south and leave this one up here. So I'll have two completed rigs. But it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's good to have some, like I said, it's good to have something to work on. Also, you got to pace yourself a little bit. You know, you, you just if you build it stage by stage, you say, okay, like this week I'm going to do the VFO. Next week I'm going to do the BFO. Weekend after that I'm going to do the TIAs. You know, this whole thing came together. We're 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 pretty much ready to go on the receiver, and it, it was only it's only been about a month, and that's with a lot of problems like the test lead and the the bad J three tens. You kind of you learn you you learn as you go along, so it, it's good stuff. But hey, anyway, that's enough of that that project, Pete. This you you've reminded me. It's time for us to do the Shameless Commerce Division. Yes, and we've got a lot of a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Let me just say first of all. People have been asking about the Amazon pages on the blog. They have once again disappeared. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm going to try to get them to come back. But it's it's not easy. And it's, it's kind of bad that they're always disappearing. So I'm kind of mad at our friend Bezos because of this. But I'll try to get them back on there. But... <laughs> This is one of the reasons I'm not really all crazy about working on computers and digital stuff. This is why we're going to talk bad about the 7300 here in a few there minutes, you go. Pete. There you go. But then, um, but then there, there is some really good shameless commerce news out there from Portland, Oregon. Oregon. So tell us about this, Pete. Well, first of, uh, in our last podcast, uh, I had mentioned that Todd was going to be dropping some boards this summer. And uh, shortly thereafter, his newsletter came out, and on on uh, the twenty sixth of August, uh, he's going to be releasing a transceiver board. He's taken the P three ST design and created a board transceiver. So that's going to be sold as a kit. 
That's going to be so cool. Yeah. I, I, I was just checking the, the recent note that Todd, Todd sent out about the timing on this. And, and he, he wrote this. He said, the P3ST kit is on track for Lee DeForest's birthday, birthday release. 26th. The 26th of August. And he's going to send out another newsletter on the on July 4th and give some more details on P3ST development. So if if you're not signed up for Todd's newsletter, you're just wrong, you know? You yes. should be you should be signed yes. up for it. And uh, and you could do that by visiting the mostly DIY RF site. The links on the blog on the Solder Smoke blog page work. Go there, sign up, get get Todd's newsletter and join the uh, the mostly DIY RF Revolution. I didn't mean to talk bad about his uh, Tia boards, which are fantastic. It's just that in this particular rig, I decided to sure. no, to go fun, uh, radically fundamentalist. You know, one one other thing that uh, he did, and I just wanted to share a little bit about it. Uh, he put out a survey. He said, "What do you guys want? What's your interest?" And he got some really interesting answers. And uh, I just looked at it, Kurt, my, my time is not my own anymore, so it's a, it's a five-second look through it, but caught my eye. Uh, he asked a question about features. What features in, in the radio are you most interested in? And not at the top of the list, but high on the list is AGC. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> I, I saw that, too. And I said, AGC. why? <laughs> Turn down the volume. <laughs> I do, you know. Real hams do manual AGC. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, this is data. And then the other thing is uh, there was a strong tilt towards complete kits versus boards. You know, pe- people were interested in having a complete package, and I guess that's just laziness. The other thing that was interesting is to see interest in CW. There was a lot of interest expressed in CW, but then... You think about Hans. I think Hans has sold ten thousand, close to ten thousand of the CW yeah. transceiver kit. The, the sixty dollars CW. I know it was yeah. five thousand, but I think it's since doubled. So I mean, wow. there's a lot of interest, and I guess at sixty dollars, people could become interested. Six hundred, they may not be interested. So I think that that's good marketing data for them. And then there was interest in an SDR kit. Now yeah. you gotta you gotta worry a little bit about the sample size, and and he he sent me an email about that. He said, you know, if you're looking at 500 people, you're going to get one answer. If you look at five people, you may get a slightly different answer. So somewhere in between, there is some interest in in having an SDR kit. But I thought it was a lot of really good data coming out of that it survey. Is. And that, it's interesting. The other, the, other, the other feature that I saw mentioned was they, they were interested in having an S-meter. Yes. And I, I kind of, I know, you. At the, on the one hand, you think, well, duh, it's, it's, it, it's just very unscientific. But I kind of like having the meter jumping around too. I, I, I wish I had one. I'm going to have to come up with some sort of audio-derived S-meter because I don't have an AGC. So, you know, well, here's a good here's a good thing for you. You can either have a separate meter, and I have some transceivers with a separate meter, or you can create a meter <laughs> with an SI fifty three fifty one in the color TFT display. You know? Oh, I know, and I and I've actually I've actually seen the S meters on sixteen by two displays. Yes, yes, Hans did that. 
I know, and I, I've seen them, and I, I, I had S-meter envy because I have a number of 16 by 2 displays easy, here. Easy to do. Easy to do. Easy for you to say, Pete, because I... I <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is what I face with with Dean, you know, because Dean is a real, for real, hardcore software guy who really yeah, knows how to, to do, do this stuff. Yeah, easy to do. And he starts when he starts talking about what he's doing. I just my head hurts. I think I can't. I, I don't even understand yeah. what the problem is. But he's coming up with three different solutions, and I really admire that. But one thing I like to say is those skills are few and far between. There aren't too many people like that. But anyway, Todd's survey was 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 really good. But um, maybe Pete, this is a good point to, to talk about the evils, the heart of darkness, the seventy three hundred. What do you think? Before we go to that, I have a couple just quick go, go ahead that I, that I wanted to bring up. First of uh, um, last month, I did a presentation to an amateur radio club in England, in the UK. And I've I've actually spoken to this group a couple of times, and I they they were asking me, Chief, we'd like to have you come back. What could you talk about? And I said, Well, I can't talk about projects because I I just don't have the time to solder up stuff. But I I did want to spend some time about troubleshooting, and so the the discussion uh, was the discussion title was uh, troubleshooting in three easy steps, and. I start off my first page. If you believe it's three easy steps, I have a bridge I want to sell you. <laughs> there are no three easy steps. So I think if people are getting into circuitry, and maybe this deals a little bit with Todd's uh, survey, is that I think people want to jump into this stuff without making the investment of understanding how things work. And really at the heart of this is you, one of the things you need to do is collect a lot of information. You need to know if you're especially working on a on a commercial rig that you're trying to fix, and there's a lot of boat anchors floating around you can pick up pretty cheap. But you need to get everything is available on all of the documentation, schematics, and what have you. Then the other thing is you need to understand how it works. I mean, before you can get into it, you need to know all the pieces so you can say, well, where do I start? I mean, I got this box. You don't want to start ripping parts out willy-nilly without really understanding what's going on. You got to be prepared to have some good test equipment. I mean, you need more than the flashlight and a screwdriver <laughs> to do troubleshooting. I mean, so many guys don't have, and they buy a nano VNA, and that's the other thing. They don't know how to use it, and so they 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 wonder why. Well, why doesn't this work? Well, I got the nano VNA. Well, you never took the time to really understand what's going on, and then typically you find that many of the problems are pretty simple things that are wrong. And if you invest that time up front, you'll come to the conclusion what the problem was. Like the, the Drake TR7 was a 38-cent voltage regulator. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I got, this radio was bought at discount for 38-cent voltage regulator. In the case of a KWM1, it was a broken wire. I mean, in the case of a, of a, t a 10-tech radio, it was, it was a blown light bulb. It was a blown light bulb that was in the circuit. It was feeding voltage, so there wasn't voltage in the circuit. So many times, it, you, if you do all this analysis up front, you can really zero in on what the problem is, and, and you can be successful in, in your troubleshooting. But the problem that exists today is people want to jump to the conclusion without investing the time up front it really takes to do it. The right and they want to and they want to send an angry email to Pete Giuliano saying <laughs> yeah. that your, July, your design, the, the design stinks sucks. because I couldn't get it to work. Yeah, 
you didn't <laughs> do the right thing. I mean, gimmicks don't work. I've never built one, but it won't work because it's too floppy. I mean, come on, guys. You know, <laughs> you just got to look at this stuff. Um, yeah. Next thing is, I wanted to talk a little bit about the KWM one, but more importantly, you mentioned some things that I, I wanted to share with you. Gene Senti, a brilliant Collins engineer, designed and built the KWM one in his basement shack, as not as a Collins project, but something he just took on and called Art Collins over and says, hey, <laughs> what do you think about this? And he might have been a paisan, right? Yes, he might have. But Senti also is responsible for the design of the 30L1 linear amplifier, but he also spent a much of his time doing pencil and paper birdie analysis, what you were talking about. Collins had a nomograph of, of things that you could run into with mixing frequencies. It was all done by hand, and the guy behind that was Gene Senti, the same guy who designed the KWM-1. So wow. when, when you Pretty think cool. about birdie analysis, you, matter of fact, there's some published charts that Collins has about mixing frequencies. Yeah, and you can find them, I think, on the Collins reflector, or you can find them on the internet. So, I mean, while you were doing the analysis, I was thinking, Senti, <laughs> there's a yeah, guy. Yeah, and th there's another thing, just as as you mentioned it. You know, Wes has a really good program called Spurfinder Zero Eight. Yes, yes. And you you can plug in you plug in basically the BFO frequency and the VFO frequency. Good amount, yeah. And then you could tell out out to what harmonic you want to go and how when you're tuning and when you're going to see it. So it's it was pretty cool. And like I said, that one had given me uh, it, it had warned me of this problem that I'm facing, but I thought I could get. I still think I could get around it. It's so a anyway. feature. <laughs> it's, it's a feature. <laughs> It'll, it'll help me calibrate the dial. I mean, yeah, it's, yes. good, good thing I thought of this beforehand. But I wanted to talk a little bit also about the KW1. Some The other day I just had a few minutes and I said, hey, I want to try something. I have designed and built an outboard digital adapter that you can literally take any SSB transceiver and you connect it up using my adapter with WSJTX. You can do FT8. So I just plugged it in. It just plugs into the mic jack, plugs into the audio jack, and everything is external. And I have a, a Windows computer that's running WSJTX. And there was the KWM1, 65 years old, running FT8. So some of these older rigs, I mean, if they're stable enough, now keep in mind, not all 65-year-old <laughs> SSB transceivers have the stability of a Columns PTO, but that that that's an important thing is stable enough that so you can run it i was able to successfully do ft8 with a kwm1 so now are you doing transmit and receive yes wow yes pretty pretty cool pete yes yes and and, and i mean and, and in the little comment section you could say rig here kws1 yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was what what yeah 65 years old yeah, so, you know, I'll get on the air and I'll say I'm running KWM1. And says, I never heard of that. I said, well, you haven't been in the hobby very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it was kind of, it was not the first. The Cosmophone was really the first transceiver, but it's the first one that was 100 watts in a box and had a lot of notoriety. And the other thing is there were only 1,250 some of these made. There's only 1,250 KWM1s. And I have four of them. Wow. 
Man, that's pretty cool, Pete. And I and I acquired them inexpensively because they were broken. And you fixed them all, right? Fixed them all. Well, one all of right. them is a donor donor parts rig. It, it didn't work initially. I just bought it for the spare parts. But the thing is, some of these things were a tube. <laughs> just, <laughs> I can't get this thing to work. It was a tube. Well, you know, the troubleshooting thing, you're, you're so right in talking about the importance of kind of having a methodical uh, approach and also a patient approach to troubleshooting. I got mad. I don't get mad very often, but I, I saw this thing. I, I had posted, a, I think, um, Curious Mark, who's a, got some really good troubleshooting videos on the Internet. He talked about how he was struggling with an intermittent problem. And intermittent problems can be can be really difficult to solve because right as soon as you think you got it done, you come back an hour later and there it is again because it's intermittent. And some guy on below it writes, "Wow!" And you could just you could just you could almost hear the haughty tone of his voice even through the uh, in the keyboard. The first step in solving an intermittent problem is to turn it into a mittent problem. Okay. Well, dude, if you could do that, it wouldn't be intermittent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, so you ready to talk about the seventy three hundred? Yeah, uh, let's talk bad about the seventy three hundred. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm feeling like I'm hating on the seventy three hundred. You know, because haters gonna hate, Pete. Here we are. Yes, yes. And but no, but this is a sincere discussion because it's been prompted by talk about a lot of different kinds of. HDR and SDR rigs. We were talking about this at um, at the VWS luncheon this this week, and we were talking about SDR rigs. And you know the, the SDR rigs, there it's a completely different st- style of technology that that I'm using. I'm building really HDR rigs, rigs that would be considered sort of barbaric, crystal filters. VFOs, coils that may have been wound by Nikola Tesla himself, things like that. Now, the the thing I like about this kind of rig is that it it is really what you would like for tinkering. It's almost like a, a 65 Mustang convertible that you could pull up under the the proverbial shade tree and get in there and adjust the carburetor and change all the parts and know how the whole thing works, as opposed to a more modern car where you really can't do any of that stuff. The SDR rigs are more in the modern category, and it's difficult. It's especially difficult for those of us who are not software guys. Dean Dean is a real good software guy. Now, he's becoming a really good hardware guy, too, which is even more unusual but he's got deep skills and deep understanding of, of software. So he can do this. But then we started talking about the ICOM 7300, which is now probably the most powerful, most popular uh, HF transceiver in the world. And I said, you know, the one thing about the, the, the 7300 is it's really just, and this is something that you said on, on your blog, I said the 7300 is essentially two chips, two. There's an analog to digital converter followed by an FPGA. That's it. I mean, there's some display stuff. There's some voltage regulations. There's a little the bit of bandpass filter. Standard yeah, power, power amplifiers. But, but, but certainly on the receive side, that's it. 
right? So when you look, if you opened up the box, you would you would see what you described, just basically an empty box, a couple of boards, a couple of chips, boom, that's it. So when I said this, one of the other guys in the room at lunch, he said, yeah, but you know, but, but you get to, to, but when you get into SDR, you're getting into software design. And so just because you're not a software guy doesn't mean you should be critical of what software guys do. And he's right. I mean, he's right. I, I couldn't criticize what, what Dean and other software guys do because I just can't do it. It's just not my style of construction. But then I said, wait a second. Can you really do that on the 7300? Is the 7300 open source? In other words, if you buy a 7300, could you take it home and say, I'm going to tinker with the software. I'm going to go in there and change the software and put in my own software and do something else. I don't know, but I suspect not. I don't think it's an open source project. Now, Farhan's projects are all open source. The SBIDX is open source. You could go in there and change the software. You could put your own software in there. You could do anything you want with the software. And that makes it a really good platform for for kind of software tinkerers. But if you take the, the 7300, first of all, you start with hardware that's really nothing there. It's two chips. It's an analog to digital converter and an FPGA. Some of the FPGA chips, by the way, have in, in excess of a billion transistors on the chip, right? Huh. Good luck with that. And then, okay, so on the hardware side, there's not a whole lot to play with. And then on the software side, if 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 it's not open source and you can't get in there and monkey with the, and play with and, and poke around with the software and change it and improve it, all, if all you can do is change the menu settings, you know, go, go to menu 36B and change it from 6 to 6.2. I mean, that's not really software stuff. That's just playing with the menus. And if, if you have that, if you have a situation, Pete, what it would be like, it would be like, can you imagine, I'm looking at that KWS1 behind you. Can you imagine if that box was completely filled with solid plastic? In other words, they had built it and then they filled it in so that you couldn't get in there with a screwdriver or a soldering iron. And they said to you, hey, buddy, take it or leave it. This is the way it is. This is the way it comes out of the factory. And you shouldn't do anything in there with any of the internal mechanisms of the rig. We would, we would think that that was nuts. We, w- we would reject it. If, if, can you imagine a Drake 2B that came that way? You would just say, no, this is, this is just not what I'm interested in. But I think, and I may be wrong, but I think that's the situation with the ICOM 7300 and rigs like it. But I, I am open to correction. So tell me, if <laughs> listening audience, if you think there is something that I'm missing in, in my hating on the S3 73, ICOM 7300. Well, you know, I, I think one of the problems, Bill, is that First of all, there's a lot in the ICOM 7300. I, I made a blog post, and it was kind of a little bit in tongue-in-cheek and say, my rigs are better than the 7300. And and I pointed out that you're paying a lot of money. A 7300 is not typical, and it's about a 1000 bucks with a, with a discount. So that's that's kind of in the range. But some of these rigs are 6000 7000 bucks, And I'm not sure what you're getting for six or 7000 bucks. And my, my other... 
issue is American manufacturers now are relegated to making antennas. And a dipole antenna, a simple dipole antenna costing more than a hundred bucks. <laughs> there's a problem there's a problem with that. <laughs> there's a serious problem with that. And the same thing as spending six thousand bucks and they say, Well, it's the software development. Come on. That software's being developed overseas, they're paying some guy three bucks an hour to do the software. So you 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 don't have a lot invested in, in the software as such. But I think the thing is, I I think that ICOM does not want you to mess with the software because you could be doing things that would impact the basic design of the rig. In other words, you make that open source. You change one thing over here, it might have impact over here. That, right. That's not yeah. right. And, 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 and they, they don't, they don't want you it, doing that. It, it could hurt their brand. It could. Yes. yes. They don't want you doing that. They don't want them. Now, somebody who did have an open source rig was Tentech. They had a little basic single sideband transceiver the, the whole idea was uh, was open source i don't think it got to be very popular well i don't know they sold a lot of those but i mean that was the feature it was it's open source you can do this and make the changes but a lot of guys didn't feel so inclined but i think that icom would resist making that open source because hackers like like me would go in there and do something and then i'd really i'd have out of band signals all over the place <laughs> and, you, you know, and then some, oh, that rig sounds like crap. What is it? So, like you say, hurt the brand. But, but I mean, I, I'm really concerned that spending 6000 bucks uh, and the guys are not paying attention to the antenna. They buy a $6,000 radio and put it in the marginal antenna, and guess what they have? Why not? They just spent 6000 bucks. They'd be better off to spend 1000 bucks and buy a hex beam. I think you can get a hex beam with... Five bands or six bands for about a grand? Yeah, well, less, 700 bucks, 700 bucks. Okay, that. okay. Uh-huh. So that, that's a worthwhile investment. And look, you have DXCC, and none of that is on commercial equipment, and it's all a hex beam. You didn't yeah, do that before. Same gear, but the difference was the antenna. Yeah, and I think, again, this gets to kind of knowing what you're good at and staying in your in your lane. In your lane. And I just know that I, I'm not really as good at mechanical construction of an antenna than the guys who, who put together the K4KIO, Leo Shoemaker and those guys. They are. They're better. So, I'm, And I'm not really all that interested in, in antenna construction. I did the Moxon, but I, I said, man, I don't want to do this with a hex. I don't know. So I, I, I bought it anyway. But, but it's look, it's interesting look what you've what, been able to do. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, and I, I like having it. I mean, it's great fun. You can turn and it look around. Look at your earlier comments. You say, well, I couldn't buy a vertical because I'm used to the rotator. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But but I think we're, we're not knocking the 7300. I think what's at issue here is the rigs are pretty complex and and part of the problem is guys don't want to learn how to do it. I mean, I'm appalled that that a lot of 7300 owners have to contact Jimmy down there in New Mexico to get the right settings for the microphone. But that's only based on what Jimmy is hearing, hearing you sound like that sounds good to him. I don't know if that's necessarily the standard. So, I mean, I bristle a little bit that I have to – that people have don't know how to adjust their rigs that have to go to someone else on the air to get an adjustment. And, you know, this is a point we, we, we tried to make when we were kind of pushing the direct conversion receiver project. I said, you know, you'll end up with something that you built yourself that you'll have 
kind of an emotional connection to, or at least a sentimental connection to, because you did it yourself, right? But I, I always think that, you know, now the ICOM 7300 and rigs like that, you know, I, I don't have any emotional connection to this Apple iPhone that I got here in my hand because I didn't really have anything to do with it. I gave them the credit card. They gave me this thing, right? I talk on the phone. I answer emails and stuff, but I, I, I don't really do anything with it. It's something I carry around. And I have a tendency to think of the ICOM 7300 as being in that category, certainly as opposed to that KW, KWM1 that you have behind you there, KWS1 behind you, where, where you bought four of them, you got them working, and you know how all the parts work, and you go in there, and you, you've developed expertise on how to build it. Again, imagine if when you got that thing home, you found it all sealed up in plastic, and you couldn't do anything with it. Or worse yet, they, there was a note that saying, if anything's wrong, send it back to the factory. That's the thing. When you, when, you, when you listen on the bands now, you hear these guys saying, well, I had this rig, and I didn't like the way it sound, so I sent it back to Kenwood, or I sent it back to ICOM, and I'm waiting it to come for it to come back from the factory, right? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, Pete, you're right. We're not going. We're 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 not going to harp on this. But I will tell you what, in the subject line, I'm going to put Hayden on the 7300. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, we're we're not denigrating the 7300. What we're really putting a finger on is where our hobby is headed, and a lot of that I blame on the ARRL, because they have opened up these licenses that you can get an amateur extra by taking an exam. And you have the what I call the Sergeant Schultz syn- syndrome. You know nothing, but you're on the air. Uh, you, know, you actually hear guys who come on and say, well, you know, I'm an amateur extra, but I don't really know anything about electronics. You know, you, you hear this. I, I actually heard this said a few times. Like, okay. How, how can you be there? And I, I think the thing is, is a lot of radios are being sold. Now, of course, the other interesting thing that I had on the blog, you know, they're not going to put AM radios in some of the new electric cars. Well, they may get they may get overturned <laughs> because the DC motors are like spark gap transmitters that <laughs> wipe out the AM bit. So instead of solving the problem with technology, they said just eliminate the radio. But then the AM radio is part of the emergency broadcast system, so you can't do that. And of course, uh, there's a certain lobby because of the fact that AM talk radio would impact somebody's message. So if you take the AM radio out of the pickup trucks, guess what? They aren't going to get the message. So, I mean, there's some issues there. But instead of solving the problem with technology, they say, well, it'll cost something. You'll have to pay more for it. You're going to charge me anyway, you know? <laughs> Pete, good stuff, covering good ground. Let's time, we're, we're, we're in overtime, and you got to get yeah, going for yeah, your, your official yeah, duties. But let me, yeah. let's do the mailbag. Can you stick around for okay, the mailbag? Sure, sure. We've got go some ahead. good stuff in the mailbag. First of all, I want to announce that Sprat 195 is out. It arrived in the mailbox, literally in the mailbag. It's uh, the summer you 2023 got it? edition. I got it already. Wait, uh, look. There it is. It hasn't arrived out there in, in on the left coast yet, huh? No. Oh, man, no. there it is. It's a good one. And, you know, I thought about you, Pete, because on the front cover, it says tribal knowledge uh, tribal yeah. knowledge yeah all right anyway good good stuff in sprat 195 thanks for the guys from sprat and, and again if you're not subscribed to sprat what pete you're wrong that's it sign up um got a good email and a great gift from uh our friend armin wa1uqo who's down in richmond which is about 
I guess about an hour. You're and always and a half. getting so, stuff. You got the HRO dial from him, didn't you? I got the HRO dial. He sent me this book. Look at this, wow. man. This is a good book, and it's Faraday, Maxwell, and the Electromagnetic Field: How Two Men Revolutionized Physics by Nancy Forbes and Basil Mahon. And it's a real page turner. I'm telling you, I really, I really came to like. Um, Mac, uh, Faraday more than I had, and I've, I like Faraday a lot. But it, it's it's really interesting to read about his early struggles to understand, to really understand what's going on. You mentioned something earlier in the podcast, and this this connects with this. A lot of guys like to use the mag loops, yeah, mag loops for receiving and transmitting. I saw this article about a guy that built this mag loop. In the ceiling, because that was the only place that he could put it, and it sits right over his operating position. So the the RF is going right in his brain. I mean, I mean, you talk about RF fields. I said, who would sit underneath a mag loop? And he's he's running a hundred watts. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of trouble there. There's a lot of problems. Yeah, with that. yeah there you go. Anyway, you should read that book. Uh, it's a good book, and and you know when 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 Armin sent it to me, he mentioned that it, there was a guy from Richmond who has moved up into our area here outside D.C., and that's Jim K eight O I. And sure enough, at the the Vienna Wireless Field Day, I ran into Jim, and he and he's a real interesting fellow and a great ham, and it was good to meet him. So thanks for the book and thanks for the intro there, Armin. Heard, we got a nice message from Tony G4WIF, sent Father's Day greetings, I think, to both of us and to everyone yeah. else. And so so that was good to hear from Tony, one of the stalwarts, one of the, the main pillars of of strength there at Spratt and the GQRP. Heard from Alvin, G, Alvin N5VZH, and he was asking about which electrolytics he should get for his Drake 2B. And Pete, you and I had the same response Hayseed Hamfest. Hayseed Hamfest. You can't go wrong. Go to Hayseed Hamfest. It'll drop help right you in. It'll it, drop right in. It'll drop right in, and it'll look it'll look better than than the one you got in there right now. Uh, John AC2RL. He sent a nice message. You know, I I had said that for our sticker and for some of our symbols, we need to get rid of the IBEW thing. I mean, it's cute, the International Brotherhood of Electronic Wizards. But it causes confusion in the United States because it sounds like the labor union, you know. So I said, and also, it's not very inclusive because brotherhood, you know, we've got a lot of young ladies and, and XYLs getting involved well, in the well, hobby. Who was one of the authors of that book? That's right. Nancy there you go. Forbes. Right. We don't want to alienate anybody. We want to be, be fair. So I said, IBEW's got to go. John came up with all kinds of other acronyms that were sort of close to the IBEW, but I just wrote back and I said, man, I think we just got to start all over again, you know? So we're, we're, we're working on that, but thanks for sending that in, John. Uh, I heard from st- a blast from the past, Steve Stort- Snort Rosin Smith, the BB6 TNL, right down the road from you. Yeah. I hadn't heard from him in years. He had sent me good parts. He sent me the Yesu... Uh, uh, filter that I used in my Bidex Digitia, 40 meters, all kinds of good stuff. You know, he was he was in the area here, and it was around the time that 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 Farhan was visiting, and we were it was kind of a busy time. And not only that, he was 
he was further away, I think, than he thought. He was up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And sometimes I think if you're from California, you look and you think, oh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's on the road. It's right there. On the road. Not so much, especially when you factor in D.C. traffic. But I'm really sorry we missed out on seeing Steve, and I hope we get to see him again uh, because he is a true friend of the podcast, and it was great to to hear from him again. So sorry we missed you, Steve, but uh, hope next time. You know, I'm going to be going out to California more. Because my daughter's out there in San Francisco now. Oh, she so, is. She is. She's doing very well, really good, and everything's going going fine. So, uh, more Ain't West Coast right time. Right in San Francisco, or right in San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. It's really, really nice. No, she's, they're they're doing do you, very well. Do you know, it's, at it's, one time you could go out to dinner every night for seven years and not hit the same restaurant in San Francisco. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that kind of place. Yeah, it's Fisherman's good. Wharf. All right, there you go. All right, so, uh, oh, we heard from um, Joe, DL6ID, and he was helping us to track down the origins of a homebrew receiver that Grayson had found in the the Museum of Technology, I think it was in Berlin. Yeah, he found it in Berlin. Yeah. And um, Joe has been contacting people, and we're going to try to find out who actually built this thing? Details are on the blog. Pictures are on the blog. So if you're, you're interested well, and you want it more a home, information. Homebrew? It was not commercial? It was homebrew? It was a completely homebrew receiver built around, I think, 1986 in East Germany before the fall of the wall. But it was an interesting piece of gear. It looked to me like a regen. But um, it, it's there and it's in the museum. So Grayson spotted it and... Uh, and Doe, uh, I'm sorry, Joe, DL6ID, was helping us to track down the origins. By the way, Grayson, KJ7UM, author of Hollow State Design, he, uh, he was in Europe. Turkey. And this prompted reports that Grayson had moved back to Turkey. Oh. Not true. He's back. He's back with us here. He was just visiting. He was visiting uh, uh, relatives well, his, of his, his wife. His yeah, His wife is from Turkey, so he was back visiting. But, but but I think he's back in the USA now, down there in, in Florida, um, homebrewing and working on Thermotron. So it was good good to hear from, from Grayson. Also good to hear from Walter, KA4KXX. He sent us that QRB homebrew family portrait, uh, kind of an aerial view of, the, of his rigs. Also pictures of, of radio-controlled airplanes that he's been working on. Uh, it was great to hear from Walter. He noted, Pete, that he's built a lot of homebrew transceivers, but not as many as you. You remain the undisputed champion on homebrew transceivers. Um, we heard from Wotcher. Wotcher, there's a great name. ZS1KE from South Africa. He sent us info on surface mount soldering and how he was engaged in, in surface mount soldering. Not for the faint of heart. Not, but, but, but Wotcher sort of cracked the code and he showed us how he did it, which was really good. Also heard from George Zaff, KJ6VU. Oh, yeah, in uh, Oregon. Yeah, he's he's now he's moved out of the out of Silicon Valley and he's up in I think he's up in in Portland. He's got a, he he should he should link up with Todd. Todd, yeah. Todd, Todd, look, Todd, what, George, you guys got to get together. Uh, you're up there, um, and Todd George runs the Ham Radio Workbench, which is a great podcast, and recently had a rerun with with me on it. Pete, have you been on that show? No. You got to pay. Hey, George. Oh, no, no. Call- we had one with Eric. He was he was a participant with Eric. And yeah, Eric yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. There you go. But anyway, it's uh, really good. And one thing, you know, we got a we got an email from uh, from another listener 
who who said, hey, listen, you sound better on the QRP workbench than you do on the regular old Solder Smoke podcast. And, you know, Pete, I was concerned. What What's what's going on here, you know? And I, so I wrote to George. I said, George, how come I sound better on your podcast than I do on our own podcast? And he recommended an audio processor that I got. And I'm going to try to use it on this one. So I hope it makes us sound better, Pete. Presence. We've got. We need presence. Presence. <laughs> presence. <laughs> you know, this gets to the line. You, did you see the, the post I put up there about the guy, the guy who said that you know, depending on the kind of solder that you use in the audio amplifiers, it'll affect the quality of the audio output. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, this guy said. He said, you know, if you Oxygen. use. that's what i said i said i I only use cables in which all the oxygen molecules have been removed but this guy wrote this very serious thing about yeah well you know you gotta you you, you can't use leaded solder you have to use leaded unleaded solder and it affects the audio the tone and this oh my god it was really nuts i just said no no enough of that no um let's see who else um michael aa1tj and back in the hobbit hole michael is really kind of a, a a a a real, I mean, it just just a, an amazing home brewer and QRPer. Michael is the guy who did the audio powered transmitter, where he was screaming into the thing Morse code, and and it was coming out as RF. That was just an amazing piece of work. So many amazing pieces of work, Michael. It was great to hear from him. Um, and Alan Wolke, W two A E W. So many, so many kind of real pillars of the ham radio homebrew community writing in this month. Um, you know, this this was an interesting thing. It's really good when you when you've got kind of a relationship with people where you could write to them and they, they'll say, "Oh yeah, I shouldn't have done that," or maybe maybe there was a misunderstanding. Because what happened is, Alan had a video up where he was describing how a diode ring mixer works, how it really works. And this is a really useful video I, i've relied on it myself many times because it really he gives a good description of how the switching takes place in the diode ring and how that results in the complex waveform that contains some indifference frequencies really cool but you know i didn't even notice this but when you looked when alan was showing the the test circuit that he had built he had built toroidal transformers using type 6 material iron powder and whenever we build diode ring mixers, 43. type 43 material, ferrite, where you, you get a much higher inductance for the same number of number turns. turns. But Daniel up there in uh, Regina, in Saskatchewan, he went and built the first diode ring mixer in his direct conversion receiver using type 6 material. And he wrote to me and he said, do you think this will work? So you know what I did? You'll like this, Pete. Before I answered, I went into LT Spice because we have the entire model of the direct conversion oh, receiver in LT Spice. I just changed the inductance on all of the all six of the coils because there's two trifiller tor- toroids in there. And it, it changed it from 33 microhenries to 0.3 microhenries Ooh. each. Order of magnitude. Right. And then I said, okay, everything else remains the same in the transceiver. Is this going to work? And the answer is no. It won't work. And it won't work because 
you've got a much lower impedance to ground on that input transformer. So it's basically taking all of your LO energy and sending it right to ground. Yeah. And so I wrote back and I said, um, I said, hey, Daniel, you you guys, you shouldn't do that. You should go back and really use the type 43 material. As a matter of fact, I sent them a whole bunch of the, of Farhan's transformers, but I think he had some type 43 material up there and they made them on their own. But, um, but then he, uh, then Daniel had a good question. He said, well, well, why did, why did Alan use type six material? And I wrote to Alan, I said, Hey, Alan, why did you use type six material? And he came back and he said, Oh, you know, you're right. I should have used type 43. Now what Alan did was he just had type six material and all he did was he cranked up the signal generator. So he got it to the point where there was enough RF en- energy, enough RF to fire the trans trans fire the the diodes, and it made it work. So his his experiment and his demonstration was completely valid. But in terms of when you're actually going to build one of these things, yeah, your yeah, signal type- energy is no no nowhere near that. You'll never right, switch right, it. Right, 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 yeah. So it had to be type type forty three. But really, it was good to hear from Alan about that. And it, it's so great to have somebody who's so knowledgeable and so, you know prolific in his production of videos and stuff who's, who's so accessible where you could write to him and say hey what, what's what's happening with that um you know i i mentioned dean kk4 das he is um involved in, in building a, an swr meter that uses a tiny sa i think it is a, it's a it's a microprocessor in there and it, it's just the other day he was talking about this on the, the Vienna Wireless Makers Group, and he was talking about his efforts to program the the the, the little microprocessor in this thing. And the for Ad me, Mega. It, yeah, in the eighty five, yeah, yeah. But it was just amazing to hear him talk about it, and it, it was a reminder to me about how deep the knowledge of software engineers can be on this stuff, and how far away I am from that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm at the point where I could say, okay, use a type 43, don't use type 6. But I'm nowhere near, nowhere even near being able to talk knowledgeably about how to write the program. This gets us, Pete, to AI and Pete GPT. Because, you know, Dean was uh, deeply involved in, in that scam. And he and I continue to talk about AI and what's happening in that area. It's 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 great to be able. Oh yeah, and Dean came up with with a great term for the lexicon. Remember this one? Dean came up with it, and I, I referred it to you and to to Steve Silverman, who's our lexicographer. Hamsplaining. Hamsplaining. Yeah. Hamsplaining. Hamsplaining. Yeah. Hamsplaining would be like me coming to you and saying, "Well, Pete." You know, when you're working on the KWS-1, you should really pay attention to this, that, or the other thing. Now, given the fact that I've never even touched a KWS-1 and you've worked on four of them, that would be a good example of hamsplaining. Or if I went to Dean and said, you know, Dean, your programming of that microcontroller is, I think, deficient. You should do this instead. Given the fact that I've never touched one of those microcontrollers and don't know anything about writing code, you know? I, I could barely make the the light blink on the Arduino, right? But hamsplaining is when somebody who really almost demonstrably doesn't know what they're talking about decides to lecture the other person. This is related to something that 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 women have faced for a long time, mansplaining. So Dean uh, Dean has come up with the term hamsplaining. I think a useful term, and it has been included in the lexicon. 
finally, the last one on the on the uh, on the mailbag, Pete. We got an, a nice message from Bob uh, early in May from Bob N7SUR, and he let us know that 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 Dean and I are the finalists in the uh, Hackaday Prize competition. There's a, there's a prize, Ooh. and so just to be just to being named semi-finalists, we we win a five hundred dollar prize. Ooh, nice! And we're in the running for the final prize. And the final prize is fifty grand. Jeez! I know that wow. would buy a lot of direct conversion receivers, my friend. Or a lot of ICOM seventy three. <laughs> no, we're not going to buy ICOM seventy three hundreds. No, we we've talked about how we would use the the proceeds from the award to continue the uh, revolutionizing of technical education through the the use of direct conversion receivers. You know, I, I really got to laud you guys for taking that thing on because I think I think you've opened up a door here where where a lot of you know tribal knowledge that both you and Dean have can be imparted on on new hams. The problem is I'm not so sure some of these schools have really thought this thing through. I mean, these projects could be impactful, impactful. Uh, I mean, what some guy learns there today, 20 years from now, he invents something based on what he learned there. And I'm not sure that, that that's understood. I think you're right. I think there there is a problem with the schools. There's also a problem with how busy the lives of the of young people are today. I mean, when you and I were kids, are we we were relatively free and <laughs> and carefree compared to what some of these folks are. Well, are faced look at with. the look at the math and reading scores of the middle schools. I know it's it, 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 it's degraded dramatically. It's, yeah, but if you're at the other end of the spectrum, if you're at the point where the scores are as high or higher than they've ever been, the problem is that those kids are under such pressure to maintain those scores and to excel and to get into the best colleges and everything else that it sort of crowds out their ability just to be young people and tinker, you know? They just, you know. Girlfriends. (laughs) It's not an equation. (laughs) Yeah, I know. There's only so many hours in the day. But but it's fun. It was fun to work on it. And I I hope we're able to, to do more. And Check out. Go ahead and check it out. I'll, I'll put the link up there. So you could you could take a look at the project there. Wow. After 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 you finish listening to us hating on the ICOM seventy three hundred, take a look at we, what we've we done with direct conversion receivers. We don't hate the seventy three hundred. We hate where where the direction of the hobby is taken because people have not invested the time to really learn about the hobby. They just want to get they want to get a ticket and get on the air without understanding what they're doing. That's the problem. That's very magnanimous and diplomatic of you, Pete Giuliano. <laughs> <laughs> want to learn something? Build one of my radios. There you go. There you go. There you go. Hey, Pete, it, it's great to be be back on the podcast with you. I must say, I know you're under a lot of stress, a lot of strain because of the, the situation with your XYL. But but you're you're looking good. You're sounding good, and uh, and I, and you're hanging in there, man. So um, I, yeah. I think I think it's great. I'm, I'm I'm glad to glad to talk talk to you again. And I hope we'll, we'll do have to do another podcast sooner rather than later right you bet hey happy fourth of july that's right happy fourth of july to everybody in the usa yes time to rent the tom cruise movie fourth of july fourth of july the tom cruise movie well what do you like the first top gun movie or the second one 
No, no, I was talking about the movie Fourth of July where he does that guy Kovic that's in the wheelchair. Oh, yeah, that's right. Born on the Fourth of July. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I met that guy. I met that guy once. I did. I met him. Oh, no kidding. I did. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's another story. Another story. All right. Hey, Pete, 73 from Northern Virginia. 73 from the left coast. Thanks a lot, Pete. We'll see you. Bye bye. See you. Bye bye. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. 